The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit channeling Boba Fett and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 223 with guest Bill Wagner, recorded live Wednesday, March 21st, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now bring the ASP.NET Masterclass on-site to your development team, online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service, online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who says he'd give his right arm to be ambidextrous, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is your host, Carl Franklin. Since 2002, the best kept secret on the internet. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Hey, Richard, how you doing? I'm good. Ask me how the weather is. How's the weather? It's hot. We're in Orlando. <laughs> That's right. We are, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Through the magic of radio. I love radio. Psych. Psych! <laughs> All right. Let me read you an email. Please do. All righty. I'm in a good mood today. Me too. Yeah. I'm in Orlando. Why wouldn't I be? Orlando's such a fun place. It's the happiest place on earth. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> be happy. Wear ears. Yeah. All right. Email. An email from Malcolm Anderson. Hi, Carl and Richard. We're gearing up for a code camp here in the Portland area, May 19th and 20th. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to presenting again. However, last year, I was up against poker bots for fun and profit and uh, missed a presentation that I really wanted to see. I'm hoping that was a gag. Me too. <laughs> this brought up the idea of filming, storing, and streaming all the sessions for this year. I made an offhanded comment about farming out the task to local high schools, their students, and their AV departments. Our Padnug president, Rich Clausen, in a demonstration of vast leadership skills, said, Good idea. You should do that. Be careful what you wish for, pal. Punishment for creativity, man, every time. <laughs> the answer is no, I don't know how to do that. 
Well, funny you would say that, because here's what he says. My problem is that my understanding of this realm boils down to how to open a DVD player, stick in a disc, and hit play. Hmm. This means that my initial idea of some kind of contest that the students would compete in three-person teams, the winning team to get an Xbox each, probably sucks. Hmm. All depends on who's paying for the Xboxes. True. Then I hit upon a bright idea of sucking up to you two, Carl and Richard. <laughs> Great. <laughs> We are the swagmeisters. Oh, he's not asking for swag. He's asking for ideas. Oh, he said ideas. If you two would bring up. He said, "If you two would bring this up on the show, I'm betting that your listeners would have a ton of ideas on how to a structure this as a contest, b judge the results of such a contest, and c what kinds of rewards to offer for a contest that will encourage but not insult." You know what? Of course they are. Our listeners are the smartest podcast listeners, period. I don't right? disagree. We, we ain't no Don, Don and Drew audience, okay? <laughs> this is an intelligent audience. They got to go it on. They do. All yeah. right, let me finish. Okay. The initial intent was to record the Code Camp sessions for later playback so that the attendees would go back and either see the sessions they missed or review a session that they really liked or share it with their coworkers. All valid ideas. But another benefit of this would be exposing all those broke future programmers to the MS Camp before the Java guys snap them up. <laughs> oh, uh, or I mean, win hearts and minds. <laughs> snap. <laughs> nice. No, seriously, there has got to be something that can be done with Media Center or some other piece of MS software. Who knows? Maybe the Channel 9 guys hmm. can offer their professional training to this winning team. Hmm. Oh, <laughs> professional training? Are we talking about Rory Blythe here? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Or maybe there's an official Microsoft You're a Winner page that could be created to recognize the winning team. Mm -hmm. I feel like a marketing weenie suggesting that last one. <laughs> Hey, kid, come out, spend your weekend filming geeks ooing and aahing about stuff that makes no sense to you, and if you really work hard and impress our judges on some technical merits that I do not understand, then we'll put your name on a webpage that you can show off in a future interview to imply that you are great and will make a wonderful newscaster. Hmm. Any thoughts, ideas, or improvements? Thanks, Malcolm Anderson. Yeah, I got a few ideas, but it's only an hour show. There you go. You know? I'll tell you what. Let's leave this up to the listeners. Please email us. And where can they email us at? Uh, it would be .netrocks at franklins.net. And then we'll bring this back up again, because I think it's an interesting idea. I had some thoughts as well, but I'd rather get some ideas from others first. Yeah. All right. All right. So that leads us into the West Michigan Day of .net. Oh, yes. In Grand Rapids. In Grand Michigan's Rapigan. You keep saying that, and I still can't say it. <laughs> so, May 19th, Davenport University, Grand Rapids, Michigan, running all day. Yep. And if you want to get more information, go to shrinkster.com slash N1H, November 1 Hotel. Yep. And, of course, uh, Mix 07 is coming up. There's going to be a surprise announcement at Mix that's going to blow people away. Going to be exciting stuff. That's April 30th to May 2nd at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas. Yeah. And the uh, you want to plug the uh, Dutch Code Camp, too? Oh, sure. The first Dutch Code Camp ever on .NET, coming up May 12th. And you can find out more information at www.code-camp.nl. Okay, so if you're looking for a job, there's a couple of uh, .NET Rocks listeners who have 
uh, put out some feelers for uh, for for people. One is Greg Brill down at Infusion in New York City. He's looking for people to come join uh, the team for a year and do the what he's calling the New York tour. And it's free apartment, uh, you know, rent free apartment for a year and uh, a nice salary on top of that. Great guy. Great company. Go to shrinkster.com slash KH6 for that, uh, for details on that. And there's also a great gig in Washington, D.C. for ASP.NET gurus who, uh, you know, who, who know their stuff and who want to join a great team. And that's, I believe, a permanent team. If you're located near or willing to be relocated to the Washington, D.C. area, uh, you can read about that at shrinkster.com slash MMJ. And these aren't like, you know, companies that would be on monster.com. These are listeners. Right. Uh, you know, who have teams that listen to the show and uh, they contacted us and said, you know, we think we'd like to have some of your listeners because they're a smart bunch, as I said before. You were so right. Yep. So it's turning out uh, to be a good thing. And uh, if you're interested again in, in New York, it's uh, shrinkster.com, KH6, Washington, D.C., shrinkster.com slash MMJ. All right, Richard, time to talk to Bill. Bill Wagner, co-founder of SRT Solutions, has developed commercial software for the past 20 years, leading the design on many successful engineering and enterprise Microsoft Windows products. He now spends his time facilitating .NET adoption in clients' product and enterprise development. Bill's principal strengths include the C-sharp language, the core framework, smart clients, and service-oriented architecture and design. In 2003, Microsoft recognized Bill's expertise and appointed him regional director for Michigan. In 2005, he was reappointed and also awarded Microsoft C-Sharp MVP status, Most Valuable Professional. A frequent speaker and internationally recognized author, Bill has been a contributing editor, editorial board member, and columnist for over a decade. Addison Wesley released his latest book, Effective C-Sharp, in 2004, He's a founding member of the Great Lakes.net user group and the Ann Arbor.net developers group and actively contributes to the Ann Arbor Computer Society. Welcome back to the show, Bill Wagner. Hey, Carl. Hey, Richard. Hey, man. Uh, so you're back quickly. I'm just looking at the notes here, and uh, this is show 223, and you were on show 203 back in November 2006. Yeah, I think it was right about the end of the show we said, you know, we haven't even talked about your C-sharp book. We've got to have you back to talk about that. And uh, we actually got a bunch of emails from listeners to the same thing. It's like, hey, you have Bill Wagner on the show, and you didn't talk about C-sharp. What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we were gearing up for CodeMash at that point, so I was pretty much, like, focused there as opposed to... Uh, on the C-sharp stuff, and, uh, well, you know, with your reputation, I hadn't washed my hair for that show and everything, ah. and I was afraid it was just going to be, a, you know, not not the best. How'd it uh, go, by the way? What's code, that? How'd the Code Mash go? Code Mash was a lot of fun. We had a, a really good crowd, a lot of different people there talking about a lot of different things, um, a lot of different languages, uh, you know, people with Python and Iron Python. Um, Scott Guthrie was there talking about some of the things coming out in Link and wow. Yorkus release. That's great. Um, a lot of things about Vista, a lot of things about, you know, what's happening in, you know, other database communities, um, Java community, uh, Flex, which is a rather interesting web UI toolkit. Um, so there's some neat stuff there. It was, it was good to really look at other things. Did you get to meet the winners of the tickets that uh, we gave away on the show? 
You know, I never did. Or if I did, they did not uh, say anything about that that's where they got them. Hmm. So, uh well, we did give them yeah. away. <laughs> oh, I know, I know, and I remember getting them. You know, working with you and trying yeah. to find some lost email to make sure we got them to the right people. Yeah, I think I think uh, they. I'm pretty sure they went. Yeah. So well, anyway, was, let's let's talk. Uh, let's talk about what you're what you're thinking about these days, which is more about C Sharpa, uh, the charter for the Effective series. What's the Effective series? Okay. Well, the Effective series started with uh, Scott Myers, who wrote Effective C plus plus. And he wrote that probably around 95. It was one of those times where a book just had the right content at the right time. And just about every good professional C++ developer I had had a copy of that book somewhere. You know, and people would photocopy the table of contents to remember it and put it up on their on their monitors or something so they could remember those things. Wow. And the idea behind it is what he did is he had 50 items that were 50 specific recommendations on what you should be doing when you're writing code. And each essay, which was somewhere in the three to five page range, would say why you needed to do it and under what circumstances you could violate that recommendation. And he followed that up with more effective C++ and then later with um, a book called Effective STL, which was covering the STL portion of the standard C++ library. And since then, uh, he started to have people request to do, you know, effective this and effective that. And he kind of goes, well, you know, these are topics he just wasn't interested in. So he started to work with other writers to do effective other things. Um, Rusty Harold um, did Effective XML. So is this his book label, basically? or It is his series, and uh, it's published by Edison Wesley. Oh, okay. And uh, Ted Neuer did Effective Enterprise Java was one of the other titles that some of the .NET Rocks people would be really interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea behind it is to follow that same idea, that here's the you know, N things, and 50 is sort of like the most common number, that everybody using this technology needs to know and needs to remember when they're writing professional code. So there's no gray area here. These are absolutisms. Well, no. There is a, there is a gray area in the titles. And... Here we kind of break those a little bit, but there's sort of five verbs you use in each title. You know, always, um, usually, occasionally, avoid, and never. So, of course, always do something. Well, that's pretty hard and fast. You know, or prefer is the second one, which is, well, if you've got choices, here's the better one. I see. You know, and then consider are things you should be looking at. Avoid are things that, well, you probably don't do unless... You know, all these rules that I'm going to give you, all these cases I give you, you don't apply. And then never is, well, just don't go there. You know, and that's those are these bad habits we sometimes get into that you just shouldn't be doing at all. Have you ever had, uh, or has he ever had, people challenge those assertions? Um, you know, yeah. And, and one of his stories that I really liked, which has to do with why you really need to explain why you're doing this. As he was giving a lecture and and it was material from the book, and here's all the things you need to do to avoid memory leaks when your application is, is exiting at the, at, yeah. at the end of life of things in C++. And he's given this lecture, and he's about 10 minutes into it, and one of the developers says, you know, Scott, we're writing software that runs you know, laser-guided bombs. When our software stops running, the bomb goes boom. <laughs> so it, it just doesn't apply. Yeah. 
I yeah. do not need to clean up my memory space. <laughs> right, right. So, <laughs> not you know, even a bit. That just wasn't one of the concerns they needed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Successful termination of the software is the goal. <laughs> right, right. So the, it just didn't apply. So that's what's important on, on the content of each of the items is that there's tips that you should remember. And if you're thinking that maybe I shouldn't use it now, or maybe I don't need to now, you can reread the item. They're usually pretty short. And then you can figure out, well, okay, it really doesn't apply now. Yeah. So I will do it this other way, and I'll, I'll avoid this recommendation, and that's okay. But I guess the big thing this book does is put forward these 50-odd ideas that you should decide on for your project, how you're going to deal with them. Right. And, um, you know, some of them are, are early stage design choices and some of them are coding practices. So they're kind of things to keep in the back of your head, you know, as you're doing all the different tasks that go to delivering software. That really gets out of the how do I do something I intend to do kind of book and gets into the, well, what do I intend to do and, uh, you know, and why. It's, it's sort of more of like a knowledge book rather than an information book. Yeah, that, that's a real good way to put it, Carl. I, I, I like that. I'll have to seal that. Feel free. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it, it, and you make this, you've made this point before that it's really meant to be your second book. Right, right. Anything in the Effective Series is meant to be, you know, it's not a tutorial. You know, it's not the, oh, how do I build a web service? You know, um, it, it's meant to be, okay, I've already done this. Now, what did I do wrong that made that not production quality, but a really neat demo? And what would make it software that would be, you know, a lot more stable over time, scale in the larger systems and, and you know, into the future releases of the product? Right. So so naturally that leads us to the next book you're writing. Right. Well, now you right. did the first one in 2004. That's correct. So you got a new one coming. Right. I'm in the process of writing one that is... is Titled More Effective C-Sharp. <laughs> Son and, of Effective C-Sharp. Right, right. <laughs> and um, the original book did not explicitly cover anything in C-Sharp 2.0 or the Visual Studio 2005 release. Um, so I'm covering a lot of the things that you can do with generics and some of the other keywords like the yield return concept and uh, yeah. custom iterators. Um, and then... There's a discussion going on on just how much content on the Orcus release to put in. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, because on the one hand, that's there's a lot there that I think is really going to be important for people to understand and, and to use, and it's it's hard to do an effective title you know, for that series off the betas because sure. unless you're really using stuff, it's kind of hard to know what mistakes you're going to make. Well, yeah, I mean you're. It seems like the whole effective charter is based on this is my experience, right? Right. And this right. is knowledge from my experience. And if you haven't had experience on the stable product. Yeah. Right. Now, there's there's two things kind of in my favor in terms of, of doing a reasonable amount of link content. Uh, the first one is with the CTPs and such, we're able to see the compiler. And just because it has to, you know, the compiler stabilizes earlier than some of the other pieces of what's going to be Orcus. Um, and, yeah. mm. you know, there's still going to be some changes there, but... You know, maybe, you you'll just have of, to, maybe you'll just have to come out with still more effective C-sharp. Right, right. I, I don't know if there's three books in me or not, but we'll see. Um, and, uh, 
some of it, it may also be just we'll wait to release it a little bit longer until we're more comfortable with the um, C-sharp 3.0 content as well. Yeah. Have you ever felt envy for the new slick interfaces introduced in Windows Vista? I'm sure you want to have something similar in your apps, but unfortunately that's quite hard to achieve with Windows Forms. There is WPF, of course, but that requires you to adopt a whole new programming model. Wouldn't it be nice if you could have scaling, rotations, animations, alpha blending, complex gradients, and all that in classic Windows Forms? How cool would your application be then? Well, it's going to stand out. And it's definitely going to look nice. Stop envying and start delivering great experiences today. Telerik Rad Control Suite for WinForms offers the first Vista-style controls for Windows Forms. Pick a Vista piece of UI and try to implement it with the Telerik controls. Chances are that you can do it. Join the Telerik WinForms Challenge today to explore the controls in a fun and engaging way. The challenge is a mini quiz that shows off the unique features of the controls. In just 10 to 15 minutes, you can see how you can make your desktop apps much more appealing. And you can win a product license by simply answering five questions correctly. And everybody who completes the challenge is automatically entered into the drawing for the grand prize... Get this, a 50-inch plasma TV. Check out Telerik Rad Controls for WinForms and join the WinForms Challenge today at www.telerik.com slash contest. You know, so many books in this industry are planned to be released the day the software is released. Mm. And I just don't think that makes sense for this style of book where it's really more about the applied practices. Right. I think you're definitely right. And as I say, that's shifting a little bit, and then I think we're going to be closer to the release than would previously be true, you know, because of the, the in- increased transparency at Microsoft between, you know, the private betas and the public CTPs. Right. You know, and the Go Live license, even. People are going to be trying to build products with this or internal projects um, whenever the Orcus Go Live release, you know, happens. So you're, you mentioned Link. How much Link stuff is going to be in here? And I imagine it's going to be hard because, I mean, there are entire books that are thousands of pages long, you know, that are going to be written about Link. Right. Um, well, I'm actually only covering a, a subset of what makes up Link, okay, in that I'm going to be talking about the things in the C-sharp language that you can use in Link. So things like building anonymous types, you know, local type inference, extension mm. methods, and the various things you can do with Lambda, um, Lambda expressions and expression trees. Mm. Okay. There really isn't, the, this isn't the right book to cover things like how link to SQL works, um, how link to XML will work, and how to do transformations with that. And I'm sure there are going to be other, other books that cover that in a lot more detail. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this will be more on how you can use these language features that we're adding, whether you're writing link queries or whether you're doing other algorithms as well. So it's going to be a, a, different, a, a different view of the link things than we're seeing from some of the other people. Okay. Yeah. So not to sort of give away your book or anything, but maybe we could get some examples of the sort of do's and don'ts you talk about inside of Effective C Sharp. Oh boy, sure. Um, in some of the original ones, you know, we were looking at things like, well, there's some interesting ones that generated a lot of discussion when we were writing them and putting them together. 
One being, if you look in the .NET framework, there's, and specifically the C-sharp language, there's three different ways to test equality for objects. Right? There's or actually four. There's reference equals. There's the system.object has a static method called equals. Okay. Then it's got an instance method that's virtual called equals. And then in C-sharp and in VB, you've got a, um, an e- equality operator. Right. Earlier versions of C-sharp and now in VB, you can override that. So the world gets pretty strange when there's four ways to test equals. It, you it seems like a harmless thing to them. do. Right. And, and you can control two of them and change the behavior. So depending on how you <laughs> test for equality, things may or may not be equal. And that makes for some pretty hard code to read and understand. Okay, until you dive into it and figure out, well, what are they trying to say with these things? You know, and reference equals is pretty clear. They've got to have the same reference to each other. Right. So you're actually that, making sure the references are the same. Right. The static object equals actually is going to call the uh, the left side operator's instance method of equals. Okay. So that's fair. So then it, it ends up calling a method you control if you're on the, the left-hand side of the operator. Right. And then the other two you can control yourself. So the rest of the item is then all about how do you make sure exactly, you know, if you do need to overwrite this method or override the quality operators, and if you do, how do you make sure it's mathematically correct? Hmm. You know, things like, you know, if A equals B, you really have to write that correctly to make sure that no matter what happens, B equals A returns exactly the same result. Right. And it's pretty easy to get that wrong if you're not careful. Well, A and B can be a lot of things. Right. And if one is derived from the other, it's a pretty common mistake. Pretty to, you know, ouch. if A is the base class and A equals B is true and B equals A is false, if you're not careful. Right. Um, in terms of how you test the types. <laughs> yeah. And I had never thought about it that way. It makes perfect sense that it would happen that way. But right. to look at the notation, that would really mess with you. You've broken a fundamental of mathematics. Right. Don't and do that. once you do that, then... <laughs> You know, code gets much, much harder for people to understand. Right. You know, the compiler will get it right, but the poor guy looking at your code three months later won't have a clue. <laughs> uh, and give me a case where it would make sense to override the equals operator. I mean, why would you do that? Well, I can tell you. Okay, go ahead, Carl. I mean, basically, if you want to compare objects, and those objects are complex... And instead of going through the properties of each object and comparing to see if they're the same, you just want to see if this object is the same as that object. And you want to do that comparison uh, inside the object itself rather than outside in the code going property, 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 where you can do that code just once if you override the, if you override the operator. Right, right. And so there's a few different things. That's, you're moving over to value semantics. Okay, so if two customers are equal, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same reference. It would mean these are the same values. Same equal. values. Right, right. So we've got value semantics. Another interesting case is if you look at system.value type overrides system.object.equals. Okay, well, it's not that smart because it has to work with any value type that you might create. Okay, yeah. and. This changed on different versions of the framework, but one of them, they would compare just the first field of the 
values because it got really expensive otherwise. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the right place to do it. And then, right, because the only other option you have is they they use reflection to figure out what properties are in this thing and what vet fields are in this thing, and let's make sure they're all the same. Right, yeah. Okay, using reflection. So it was a very expensive API. So anytime you create a value type, for performance reasons, you really want to create your own version of equals and your own operator equals in C, uh, C Sharp to make sure that you... Don't go down that road of this very, very inefficient code. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that makes sense to me. Right. And then you end up, once you do that, then you start biting off more things like, well, if you create operator, the equality operator, you need to write the inequality operator yep. to make sure you get the same behavior. Right. And then you define one in terms of the others, and then you're off and ready to go. So now I get a sense of, you know, the problem space you defined around equality in the book, you would make these definitions, and then you also make recommendations. Right. And then it would say, okay, here's why you do when you would override one of these, which is exactly what Carl just said. Right. That you, you want to change the semantics of it if you've got a reference type, and or for performance reasons, if you've got a value type. And then here's the rules you have to follow once you're going down that road. And also the recommendation, if you're going to do that, you better do it for inequality as well. Right. Yep. So... Then, uh, so that's sort of the kind of things in the first section of the book, which is dealing with just what the language does and how to put things together there. Right. Uh, there's a fair amount in terms of how .NET handles resource allocation in terms of things like, well, whether you use um, field initializers, writing different constructors, chaining constructors, which I don't know if that's uh, available in VB, Carl? Chaining constructors, you mean one constructor calls another? Right. Sure. Okay, cool. Um, and then recommendations on how to do that. Reasons why you want to be careful about writing static constructors. Yep. And, I, and why you have to be very careful about those ever having code that might possibly throw an exception. Um, things like how to deal with iDisposable elements in terms of fill, um, putting... You know, making sure that you implement that in a way that it's easier for derived classes to work with it, for other classes that use your code, you know, if they don't do it right, how to handle finalization, and if you should. Um, that's the one that did, um, after I wrote the book, Brad Abrams and Christoph Trelina's book has a better way to solve that problem, which I wish I'd have thought of first, but I didn't. <laughs> so the framework design guidelines has some new new guidance there that actually turns out to be somewhat faster. Although the code I do have is correct, theirs is more efficient. Yeah. Hey, Bill, uh, I, I know what it's like to write books. I wrote two of them, and every you know, it seems when you're talking to authors and with authors that. You just and, and when you write, it seems like you just write this book and you put it out there and you get some emails once in a while saying, good book, great book. But have you ever gotten an email that um, from somebody that was just like either some really famous product that they used your book as a guideline to write or or something that, uh, you know, is, is really, really uh, makes a difference in the world or something that just, you know, some sort of testimonial that really hit you? You know, nothing where somebody says, wow, we use this for, you know, the greatest software ever written. Um, the one that actually got embarrassing was uh, Jim Holmes, who does a lot of book reviews. 
uh, wrote and, and put mine and put a review on Slashdot and, and got it accepted there, where he actually compared me to Knuth favorably. Oh, which wow, is like, that's scary. It's like, Jim, you, you're kidding me here. you got to be kidding. Um, Tell everybody who Knuth is. Um, Donald Knuth wrote the original The Art of Computer Science. Is that the series? He had three books that were like these seminal books on what computer science is back in the back when I was even young. So it was quite a while ago. You know, and these were things like core algorithms and data structures. You know, like this is he wrote how to make stacks and trees when that was really new. That was innovative. You know? Right, and uh, they're, they're just sort of like these seminal books on the core computer science theory. So that was, a, that was an interesting experience, because he gets it published on Slashdot on Friday afternoon, and this would have been, you know, Effective C-Sharp had been out for like two or three months. So, you know, like huh. every author, even though they say they don't, they check in Amazon, periodically <laughs> see what the book rank is. Yeah, and I was hovering in there respectively, you know, first page of the C-sharp books. And I <laughs> log in one morning, and it's number one. I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. Number one. Uh, number one in C-sharp. So I go, well, what is it in all languages? Number one. Wow. Wow. What happened? And I find out, because I'm starting to get mail that it's on Slashdot, and generated a really lengthy thread about a lot of Slashdot-like things after that. So that was kind of... That was my moment of fame, really. And, it, and it's not easy to get a favorable anything for being a Microsoft guy on Slashdot. No, and, and it's interesting in that in C Sharp you almost can because at least a quarter of the things are going, yeah, this mono stuff is kind of cool. Yeah, but right. um, <laughs> it's, um, it's a language after all. Right, yeah. right. And there's no reason you couldn't write code in that to run on other environments, although I don't, you know, it's um, certainly tied to the framework pretty well in terms of what the libraries are and the things you can do with C-sharp outside of, you know, operators and things. Um, but that, it, that was interesting. That was kind of fun. It's it's hairy, actually, because I would have thought that would then have proceeded to tear your book apart. Hmm. You know, it's funny, and, and this gets to why I actually don't read Slashdot a lot is they didn't... There have been some people that have given me... Uh, well, first, before it's written, and, and here's sort of my plug for books in general, the amount of review that a book gets, you know, especially from a good publisher, before you see it, is really phenomenal if you've never done it. You know, different people on the C-Sharp team were looking at Effective C-Sharp and telling me, you know where I could be clear, where I was downright wrong, you know, things like that. Right. Um, a real good community of MVPs looked at some of the later versions, um, you know, people uh, that are all listed in the acknowledgement section, so I'm not going to relist them because I'll forget, um, um, you know, certainly looking at that going, you know, I'm not sure this is what you mean, and I think you need to tweak this and rework that. And that takes a lot of time, and that's really worth it for the quality of what you read, you know, whether it's my book or, you know, other books on topics you want to learn more about, you know, there's a lot more eyes looking at it before you see it. Um, so then when it did finally hit Slashdot, a lot of the negative comments were, well, why would you use software for Microsoft anyway? Which is, right. you know, kind so of a generic anti-Microsoft commentary rather right, than anything right. and, you about know, that's, your work. 
that's not actionable. You know, and, and since then I have had some readers, you know, question some things and say, you know, is this what you meant? And like anybody else, I'm certainly looking at some some areas going, mm, no, that's not really what I meant. So right. I've got yeah. one copy of my office with some notes in it for whenever we, you know, make an updated printing or do things there. I got to think that, I mean, it's been two years, and obviously that's when the book was published. A lot of the thinking was even older than that. There's got to be some changes of viewpoint on some of the elements of C-sharp today. You know, this, this is where, to a large extent, I really credit um, a lot of the reviewers on it, is that while I was looking at things, I started writing it, well, it got out in December 2004, so it was probably early 2004 that I started writing um, there is not a lot in there. Like I mentioned the one item on iDisposable and how to implement that where the thinking has changed. Not much else is really different. You know, there's, there's things that you would pick a different way to solve the problem because we've got generics. Right. But the justification of, of why you did things is, is still there. There's probably different ways to, uh, to hit a few of them. But Thankfully, there are very few that I'm really looking at now and going, wow, that's just not right. So, and like I said, that's a lot of the people reviewing it that we're already seeing, you know, not just the 2005 betas that I was looking at a little bit as I was writing the book, uh, but also seeing a lot of the internal builds that, you know, nobody outside of Redmond sees who are able to, to point me in different directions. Uh, so mostly when you move into C-sharp 2.0, you're talking about new features like generics. Right. You know, and even if you look at the C-sharp uh, C language standard, the 2.0 part of the standard is a totally different section because it was completely right. additive. Yeah, they um, didn't really change any of the underlying stuff. No, no. There's a lot of new things, but nothing really broke. Or I shouldn't say broke. Nothing really changed in how underlying stuff worked. You know, which so the is book's just going to get longer. Um. Actually, I'm looking at the more effective C-sharp at about the same length. Wow. Uh, well, and part of that is, you know, it fits my style of writing, where I like the shorter essays, rather than trying to sit there and come up with a 40- or 50-page chapter on something. And if I look at my own bookshelf, a lot of what I read are the things that are shorter and because of that, probably on more narrow topics, but they're they're a little bit more focused. Um, right. Yeah. I I don't know how people write those thousand page books, but it's. I don't know how people read them. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Same here. I, those aren't the ones that I really like to devour. You know, I've got a few as references that I really look into, but those just aren't the ones I enjoy. You know, .NET Rocks would not even be possible today if it weren't for the great support of our first sponsor, Data Dynamics. And their product is the one that we really love, Active Reports for .NET. It's easy to use. It's powerful. You just create the reports. You put them right in your assemblies, and you ship them with your code. They have uh, HTML and PDF support. They've got an excellent access upsizing wizard so that you can get your access reports into Active Reports for .NET. Uh, works for Windows Forms, works with ASP.NET. It's easy, and it just works. And best of all, it won't break the bank. And that's what we love about Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics has got a lot of other great tools, too. And you should check them out. Please check them out at datadynamics.com. 
Let's um let's talk about your blog for a little bit and specifically about some things that you've written lately. Uh, Bill Wagner's blog can be found at shrinkster.com slash K1P. Uh, and I was particularly struck by what you wrote on February 13th about evangelism. And, and you were really sort of paraphrasing what um, uh, Kathy Sierra had written about evangelism. And the perfect case study for, you know, what you could consider evangelism is the Grateful Dead. And I thought, wow, Bill Wagner's a deadhead. <laughs> That's my reaction, too. Now, let me just tell you before I answer that uh, I've been to a few dead shows in my day. And, uh, you know, they the band takes their raps because they're so unlike any other band at, that ever was. They Not only their music is, you know, longer and more drawn out and uh, more improvisational, I think, than any other rock band that ever was. But because of that, you know, you t- you have to take the bad with the good and the bad shows with the good shows and it all works out. And when they're great, they were great. And when they were off, you know, we put up with it. And but they also let people tape the band uh, for free. And, you know, other bands have followed suit and they didn't mind that people traded tapes of concerts so long as they didn't sell them. But, uh, you know, I had this idea for evangelism back in the days of Carl and Gary's VB homepage that and and I even pitched it as uh as the Grateful Dead being the example of evangelism that I wanted to follow. So that really caught my eye. What just tell us a little bit about your thoughts, anything that I left out. You know, that was actually a, a pretty good summary, but when I read this and Kathy Sierra's blog is a, is a really good one to read if you just, you know, trying to learn things and and think about how people view, you know, whatever you work on. Um, she is the. She has been a um, an employee at Sun, and I don't know if she is or not anymore. She's the brains behind the um, the Head First book series from O'Reilly. Huh. And what's really interesting there, if you read all of her the things on her blog, she got into this because um, she's prone to epileptic fits and was really studying how does the brain work. Hmm. And ended up learning things about, you know, here's what turns on your brain. Um, so you look at things and you say, well, what what makes people go, yeah, this is what you've really got to learn about, right? No matter what it is, this is this is it. And you know, that's what marketing people have started to say. That's that's evangelism. That's trying to get your customers to say, this is what you got to have, right? And She's got, uh, you know, a couple interesting analogies she uses for that. And, um, you know, like in the computer world, you can look at Apple. And, and those people are, you know, they they can't understand why you're just not an Apple freak, right? Because everybody should be, right? right. You know? they're, they're the and, greatest thing ever. Right. Yeah. And, and they can't stop telling you how wonderful it is. And when I started thinking about that is I'm thinking... Everybody I know who's a deadhead, the way they got into it was some friend said, yeah, you should just listen to these. Right. Or takes you to a concert, and then you go, well, you got any more? Yeah. What else should I get? What album should I buy? Oh, don't buy the albums. Yeah. Here's don't buy the tapes. albums. Yeah. Here, here's a few tapes. Oh, okay. So you listen to the tapes, you go, you got any more? Well, right. take those and go keep trading, and it keeps growing. And those people have all the albums, too. Sure. You know, and now that the dead have retired, they've got the Dick's Pick series. 
and the From the Vault series. Yep. And I mean, I those bought are, those. Those are live recordings that the band did uh, on the road from the soundboard, and then they went back and remixed them. Right. Some great stuff. The American Ballroom one is just phenomenal. Right. You know, and I keep forgetting <laughs> not everybody is a deadhead. But yeah, so they had this whole vault of stuff. Yeah. That they went back and remastered. And like a lot of other deadheads, when the From the Vault ones came out from where I had tapes of the shows, I went and got those CDs too. Cause right, because you already better. heard the shows and the quality's better, right? Yeah. But what they did is they get all these people going, yeah, you know, you got to go see these guys. Got to do this. And because it's the customers who aren't making money doing this, um, you got a lot of fan support and the community grows. Yeah, it's the epitome of viral marketing, right? I mean, it's just the product itself sells itself and just, yeah, listen to this or, hey, use this software or or check this website out or whatever it is. See, what else is interesting there is it's also, also a form of viral anti-piracy. Hmm. You know, in that there used to be on Usenet, it's probably still there, but rec.music.gdead was a, yeah. uh, one of the news groups. And you could periodically post and say, yeah, I haven't had any trades in a while. Here's my tape list. Well, if you actually posted something that said, I want to sell tapes, you know, you were just... Crucified. Oh, yeah. Crucified. Oh, it was ugly. Yeah. You know, or if you were walking around a concert going tapes for sale, you know, that yeah, was forget it. ugly. Yeah, it didn't happen. You'd get beat up. <laughs> right, because the community just went, no, those aren't the rules. We'll be happy to trade, but those aren't the rules. Right. And, you know, to help people get started, they'd say, you know, well, just send me extra blanks and I'll make some for you, you know, trade three shows for five tapes or whatever. And um, But the music was the currency. Right, right. And it because the band said, you know, you can do this, you can record these, you can trade them. Now, you know, before we get all nostalgic, and we already have, I yeah. know that, yeah. you got to remember that a lot of people have completely ruined their lives following this band around for years and years. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I know people who can barely talk and, you know, without drooling. Right. <laughs> and there's a little bit of balance to everything. You know, of course. I have seen all the Star Wars movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I didn't wait in line for weeks for any of them. <laughs> You've never donned a Darth Vader mask. No, no, I have not. <laughs> Except for Halloween, maybe. But, you know, that would have been it. I, I um, Personally, you know, not to stay on this topic, but in fact, we probably should cut this out. But I, I just love their songs. Oh, I do too. Yeah, I, I enjoy think a lot of it. Jerry Garcia, Robert Hunter, Bob Weir, they're all great songwriters. American songwriters that that should be remembered as such. Very much so. They were all very good. I, I definitely have a preference for the Hunter Garcia tunes a little, but sure. I Me too. do enjoy all of them. And and also a little bit another connection is that the guy who wrote Cassidy, which is a very famous uh dead song, he wrote the words to it. Uh John Perry Barlow is part of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which Mitch Capor, the guy who wrote uh uh Lotus One Two Three and he and a few other guys started to promote freedom, uh, electronic freedom, so to make sure that people's rights weren't being violated um, through the Internet. And arguably the EFF is the reason the Internet is still the way that it is. Uh, you could argue that, yes. Yeah, they certainly have a lot to do with, with trying to protect a lot of different uh, you know, privacy and, and some data mining rights on the Internet. Yeah. Well, and the whole pushback against the tiered 
service. I mean, all of those kinds of things, even DCMA, like EFF is in that battle every time. Definitely. I also was reading um, the blog post, What I Learned Non-Technical at CodeMash. Oh, yeah, that was a fun one, too. Is there some really good philosophical things in there? That, that came up from a couple other interesting um, discussions at CodeMash. And we tried an experiment there where we had, in addition to the, the main sessions, we had some open spaces talks going on in, in the hall or in the area around the breakout sessions. And for those, if I can give just the 30-second primer on open spaces. Sure. The idea is you just go up to a board and you'll write down, you know, I want to talk about some topic, you know, and sometimes it was getting my company to adapt new technology. Uh, one of them was women in technology that uh, Diane uh, and Mary Poppendick spent some time on. Um, one was, you know, I want to create flex uh, UIs using Adobe's Flex Toolkit. And then you'd, whoever showed up wanted to spend some time about it, and you just chatted, and if you got bored, you got up and left. Well, speaking one of, of them... Yeah, speaking of getting up and leaving, <laughs> I think you're yeah. going to do this one, right? I think I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Oh, well, and um, what happened was one of them was about how do I get my company to adopt this new technology and, and make use of this because I think my management is a bunch of idiots and all these kind of things. And we started talking about, well, you know, have you tried to show a business case for you know, moving toward this new tool or moving toward this or that. Oh, yeah, I did, and they wouldn't listen. Well, have you tried, you know, doing this? Oh, I did, and they wouldn't listen. And finally, Bruce Eckel and I both kind of said, well, you just vote with your feet. Quit. Leave. I can't do that. I said, well, you know, if you've tried everything, you know, everything constructive you can do to get your manager to see you think they're on the wrong direction and they're not budging, you guys are just going to keep disagreeing and you're both going to be frustrated. Yeah, there's the other possibility, which is this guy could be full of crap. Well, there is that, too. And either way, they're both going to be happier if the manager's got people who are willing to, you know, say, this is decided, here's where we're going, and we're going to do it. And this guy's going to be happier if he's working for a company that he's happy and he's really behind the direction they're going in. Yeah. And and, and, you, so, and you bring up this point that some people see software development as a cost and center, and some people see it as, I mean, really a capital investment. And so the people then as well are also investing, uh, are worth investing in. Right, and you know it's very interesting to talk to people at different companies and and you know how they view themselves and how their company views them, and how you know if a training budget gets allocated. And if so, how does it get allocated? You know, um, some people learn better at conferences. Some people want to take that five-day training course. You know, some people just want a shelf full of books and some time. You know, a mixture of all of that. Um, and how do you go about getting that stuff approved? And you know, something like CodeMash, which was two days with a lot of different topics, and. A, and really inexpensive. And some people were saying they had a lot of pushback from managers. You know, and you can look at some of the big shows, like you know, going to PDC or going to, you know, if you're going to go to the MVP Summit. You know, there is so much content there. Any company should be really just pushing their people to go. Because I mean, 
I think you get to the key issue here, which is not that I want to dictate training. It's that I insist that you, as a developer, improve. Pick exactly. your method, but you got to get better. Right. And, you know, you've got to learn what else is coming down the pike because maybe you're not going to use it right away, but, you know, wouldn't you like to know what's coming next as you're adapting whatever it is you're adapting now? Um, you know, whether it's, you know, we were arguing about should we do remoting or web services or this or that, and the right answer is to get a good start and understand that you'll replace both of them with WCF in a few years anyway, right? Right. So having that kind of a view of the future really helps um, make this? better decisions. How about this one? Uh, some companies view software people as an investment and some view it as a liability or a cost. <laughs> Right, and uh, yeah, the word I used was cost, and w what's weird there is you, this has a lot to do with the environment you want to be in and what you want to do. Um, when people are, are invested in the future, you know, for any of us developing software now, you know, I don't know what's going to be next, but I'm confident that I'm going to be using a different tool set five years from now than I'm using now. You know, there's there's no doubt about it. Without a doubt, yep. And I'm going to be building different stuff five years from now than I am now because we'll have solved the stuff we can now. Um, so if you're not staying ahead of things and really learning, you're not getting any better. And I think that's important for companies, too, because and I forget who wrote it. might have been... Uh, I can't remember, but there was a, a reference to the idea that in any company you've got... You know, rising stars, cash cows, and dogs. So the rising stars are stuff that's not making money yet, but we really need to learn about them because it's going to be there. Right. Cash cows are what you're making money on now, but you got to be willing to transition off of those because they're going to turn into dogs. Yeah, they and, pass. Right. right. Um, and you've got to see what's going on, and if your company views you as just a cash cow, if you can't transition to the next thing because you're not getting any opportunities, you know, you're going to be in trouble when whatever you're doing now stops generating revenue. And by extension, so will the company. Oh, it will. Um, and what's funny to me is there are companies that do it two different ways. Some of them, you're right, the company's going to be in trouble because they won't see that this, this product has a limited lifetime. There are others that have that view of, I'll just hire new people when I'm ready for the new stuff. And those people really scare me. Oh, yeah. Because um, they're throwing away a lot of vertical market expertise and a lot of intelligence on things outside of a specific technology because they didn't nurture it. Um, and in the long run, I think those companies will really be hurt as well. But in the short run, they'll succeed for a while longer. Well, it's like buying a major piece of software uh, to so you're ultimately going to resell and not bringing the team with. Like all of the knowledge about that software is in the software. Right. Yeah. It, it's not. Um, and that never seems to go as well as it on, in reality that it does on paper. You know, any kind of those mergers and, and things moving you get around. into one of these real intangible asset issues. 
Oh and yeah, that's a, that's a tough one to figure out. What what is, what's the asset here? What what is the real value of a group of forty developers that know how to work together and could turn apps out? It's not the apps they make. Well, now what's really funny is if you look at VCs have figured that out. Um, in that if you you know VCs have the idea of people that they'll you know they'll back people because you've succeeded before. Right. Right. And you they're know? backing the people. Right, because uh, you know the the guy that started Alaire, you know, he's getting backed on a new new venture because uh, he did it once, right? Um, you know, and and those kind of people, you know, that's 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 well, going to work. always knew that about management, right? They brought in their own CEOs and CTOs and so forth, but it's interesting to see that they're pushing down to. Core developers, the guys who build the code, are rare talents, and they're valuable, and you keep them together uh, and keep them working. So um, if I can interrupt here, the you know, this is almost like, I don't know if you listen to Mondays, Bill, but I do this uh, bit on Mondays called Things I've Learned This Week. And this last item for the things that you learned from the code mash, non-technical sounds just like one of those. It's the final thing is mentioning the phrase Web 2.0 Business Plan to a bunch of nerds discussing the differences between static and dynamic languages is a great way to end a conversation. It really was. It, it actually <laughs> just sort of moved the conversation. Um, and two local guys that are really sharp, um, Dustin Campbell, who works for Developer Express and has, I think, a very challenging job. He has to code while Mark Miller is talking to him, saying what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> and he does it. It's really amazing. And um, uh, a young guy by the name of Jay Wren and I were sitting there chatting about different things. And this guy comes up and starts listening to us and says, well, what are you guys doing? And we're talking about what we do. And he goes, oh, well, and I'm doing this Web 2.0 thing. And we all looked at each other. And we went to the other bar and got another drink. And <laughs> <laughs> talking about languages. Uh, yeah, it was just like, right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and talking with some, that was a nice thing with Code Mashes. We had some really sharp people really looking at different things and, and got some great questions, great discussions, and uh, can't wait to do that one again. Other than the Web 2.0 thing. When's the next one coming up? Uh, we don't have the date, but it's going to be sometime in you know winter 2007, 2008. Right. That's cool. You know, it's really amazing how ever since the Code Camp thing started, people have been sort of taking their own ideas about, you know, doing these low. And in fact, it started before Code Camps. I think Chris uh, Sells was doing something like this. Yeah, he did his own little conference. Yeah, just these mini conferences on the weekends. And, you know, his his we talked to him. If you go back to like the first time we talked to Chris Sells, he talked about this. You know, just getting together people on the weekend for as little money as it takes to get people there and then just recruiting friends to, to talk and share about things. So this whole it's idea is actually a really very, wonderful thing. It's very dead-like, isn't it? It's absolutely you know? that way. You're only sharing information, not sharing money. Right. right. And, and a lot of that is, I think, you know, really good developers uh, of any stripe have a, a very strong desire to just keep learning stuff. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's because our industry changes fast, so if you're not, you're going to go start doing something else anyway. Um, well, we know we have to, right? We know we have to keep learning in order to stay current, in order to stay on top of new things. We have to, before we can make a decision about something, we have to know what it is. 
Right, and I think, but I think some of that is also self-selecting in that if you, you know, if if you're hitting, let's say, 30 and you just hate learning all this stuff every time you get a new release, you're going to move into a different track where that's not as, as necessary, right? Yeah. Um, and so the people that stay just want to keep growing and keep learning stuff. Um, and, and that means if we create any kind of venue to make it happen, we're going to um, congregate around that. And I think that's a you know the success of the code camps, the success of you know Dave.net, Code Mash, the Nerd Dinners, all those things. A couple of weeks ago, we um, read a letter on .NET Rocks that was a uh, uh, great. This guy uses DNR TV to hold these lunches on Friday uh, on Fridays, and all the developers in the company get together and they watch DNR TV and they get some pizza and then they donate to the the pizza uh, money that they make. Uh, is donated to UNICEF to help children in Cambodia. So it was like they're using, you know, DNR TV, the people's love of learning technology to help do something real in the world. I thought that it just really touched me. Yeah, I did. I, I think I just heard you mention that on one of the last shows I listened to. That was uh, a fantastic idea. Yeah, Eric Sink's show. Yeah. yeah. I like Eric. He's a, he's a neat guy. Got He's a, from your part of the world, isn't he? Actually, he is. He's uh, he and I are both um, Illini grads, and huh. uh, yeah. So he was there after I was, from uh, my understanding, but pretty close to the same time. So, yeah, pretty cool. It is, and um, have a lot of fun. I'm trying to get him up here into Michigan, and then there's at least two of us, so it's it would be fun. Yeah, I know. I noticed in your blog you write a lot about Link. We mentioned it before that uh, this isn't just a, a cursory thing that you're doing. You're really pretty deep into it. Well, I'm trying to be. And what I started doing, and I, I had this wild idea. You know, when the first Link CTP came out, the one that we got at PDC of '05, I started playing with the stuff. And at that point in time, I knew I was gonna write another book, but I didn't know the time frame, and I didn't know exactly the content yet. So I start working through these samples and just taking notes about, you know, what what does this stuff do? And I talked to Eldon Nelson, who I've stayed in touch with, who used to be the editor of Visual C++ Developer's Journal. And then that got folded in Visual Studio Magazine. But, um, and said, you know, this stuff is really rough, but should I just post this on the blog? You know, every time I run through a few samples and learn something, just throw it up there. And he said, well, yeah, you know, as long as people know it's rough, go ahead. So anytime I have time to sit there and dive through the samples and just see what it's doing, I take my notes on, you know, running four or five samples or a group or two, and I go, well, here's what I learned from this. And it helps me. I can find that stuff again later. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if it helps somebody else, that's that's cool, too. Tell us about Link to SQL. I don't think we've talked about that much on the show at all. You know, and that's one that I know just a little bit about, and I think that's one of the ideas behind all the things that Link is trying to be. Um, Link to SQL is is the ORM piece of Link, which is that we should be able to write queries in whatever language we want to use and have them do the right thing. So I'll write a Link query, you know, from C and customers select you know, C.name. And if 
I've built the infrastructure around link to SQL so that customers is actually a table in a database. The link library translates that into a SQL query and remotes that SQL query down to the database engine where it executes there and returns a record set, and then you iterate across those results. There's a few things that are real interesting about the way they did it in that no matter how, because, well, first of all, to back up just a bit, all of the link queries use, by default, late, uh, lazy execution. So it doesn't start executing a query and building something until you start iterating it. Hmm. Okay. So what happens then is I can define all these queries, and I can use the results of one query as the target of another one, hmm. and nothing's really happened yet. It hasn't actually gone to the database and done anything. Okay. And then once you finally say, I'm going to pull the last results out of it and stuff it in a web page or stuff it somewhere, now all of this query stuff in the form of an expression tree gets sent down to the database engine in the form of some really complicated SQL code. Yeah, there's an interesting possibility there. The fact that a developer who probably doesn't understand SQL all that well like me. can write relatively simple iterative queries that combine a bunch of data, but nothing happens until he actually does something with the data, and then it sends everything to SQL Server at once. Right. Gives the query processor the chance to say, is there a better way to do this? Yeah. That's pretty much how it works. And then some of the other bits of magic in there is when you get essentially an object back that maps to a a record or a, a sub you know a, a set of columns from a record in your database, um, the link libraries keep track of an object reference for that so that any other query that returns the same row gets mapped to that same object in memory. Right. Hmm. So that's how they're trying to handle the um, well, this object is the relational mapping. Of, it's, yeah, it's the battle of the ORM bloat. I tell you, right. I'm, I'm scared to do ORM after being the ho- after hosting the show with so many people who have so many differing opinions on it. I, I'm just, I you know, <laughs> I feel so intimidated to, to even try mm. this. Right. Now, you know, and in my, lack, my last blog post, I was looking at some of the things where they're, they're the samples that demonstrate that. And I do sort of put my disclaimer there. I'm definitely not a database guru and not really even an ORM guru. So I, I don't know how well this will work from that standpoint, but it's, it's an interesting idea. Uh, and, that it is. You know, when you, and I like the fact that there's somebody there, and I'm guessing it's Anders, who's thinking about how to avoid these pitfalls we know are there about ORM. Right. And, I, you know, I don't know that he's the only person there. You know, I know he's had a lot more to say about the language enhancements to support the syntax. You know what? we got to have a ORM bitch slap smackdown on .NET Rocks. That's what right. it's going to have to be. <laughs> One of these days. Maybe that's what we'll do up at DevTeach, because Ted will be there, you know? <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. Some um, other people, you know. Yeah, we're going to get some advocates, because let's face it, Ted Neward is not an advocate. No. No, we need to, and, but we have had advocates, so we really should get them, you know, one-on-one, take off the gloves, and let them smack each other around. Try and It'll and make great ra- radio, and Richard and I will just sit back and laugh. <laughs> and I'll, I'll listen. You know, I, I, as I said, I said view a database sort of the way of the old George Carlin um, 
comedy routine. It's just a place for my stuff. A place for my stuff. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, and, and as a data guy who has, does a fair bit of programming, I'm course very sql savvy so i'm fascinated to see how non-database people working in link are going to treat data because my experience has always been they generally treat it fairly badly probably true yeah. and you know i look at that and you know your comment on how the libraries translate things into sql queries you can turn on some logging in the link to, link to sql libraries and it will show you the sql that generates right and i looked at that and i went Wow, I'm glad I didn't write that. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I have no clue what that's doing, but it's yeah. it's all SQL stuff. Somebody smarter than me wrote this. Right. right. And that's what you really want out of the system, don't you? It's the best thing that can happen uh, out of these new uh, language constructs is that their resulting core behavior is superior code than what you would have written yourself. Sure. Right. Because right. our our experience tells us and our intuition tells us that all these code generators, ORM layers and so forth, are going to make dumber code than what we could have handcrafted. That's certainly what my fear is, you know, but maybe it's completely unfounded. Well, you know, and that's one of those things that changes over time. Um, you know, I mean, I can go way, way back in my career and we would write, you know, certain routines that had to really, really perform well. We wrote an assembler because we could write it better than the compiler could. Right. You know, and then... You know, from my background, we moved up to C because, well, okay, C, now the compiler's finally writing the code that we would write if we were writing the assembler by hand or even something faster. And then we were scared of going to C++ because there's all this overhead of object-oriented stuff. You know, and the compiler caught up there. I don't think handcrafted C would be faster than C++ at this point, you know, given what compilers can do. And, you know, we're reaching that point for so many things in .NET where... The IL and the JIT, yeah, maybe I can get some stuff faster if I went native, but I probably don't need it. Well, and the yeah. thought that, uh, you know, we've given up memory management. Right. We've given up a lot of things. Link is now suggesting that we're going to mm -hmm. give up crafting communication of the database directly. Exactly. And I, I really like Anders' comment on a Channel 9 video about language um, the future of language design there, where he says the the level of abstraction is not what's important, but it's the breadth of the abstractions you can use that becomes so much more important. You know, so now, now that I have Link, you know, and Link can be coded to call your own stored procedures if you think you can do it better. Yeah. Yeah. I have I, that choice. Right. So I have more breadth of what I can choose. I can stay at this higher level, and when I need to, for whatever reason, I can go down and, you know, get more control. Optimize where you need to. Exactly. Well, I think that's a show, guys. We're getting that way. So when are we going to see the new book, Bill? Um, well, I don't know for sure yet. I've, I've got, you know, some, some early drafts of a few chapters done, and I would... I don't know. I could think of throwing out a date, but it would probably be wrong for one. And it's going to be when I'm really happy with the right amount of content. And some of that's also going to be keyed on when Orcus comes out and how much of that content makes it into the book. Right, of course. And, in, and naturally, all the editing that's going to happen with uh, all of these drafts, it takes time. It does. It does. And then... You know, I'm hoping it is as useful for people as, as a lot of folks have told me the current book is. Well, good. And uh, 
I can't wait. You will send us a copy when it finally goes to print? Uh, I will certainly do that. Awesome. I can't wait. All righty. Bill, thanks a lot for coming again on the show. Thank you, Carl. Thanks, Richard. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...